the Paddy Power Half Hour, exclusive to OTB Sports Radio. And I know the ball into him wasn't great, but he was getting the ball in his chest and the, the touch was taking him five yards back into the centre of midfield where the pressure was. So it was, it was doing the opposite of what we need as a number 10 and Jack Byrne offers that. But again, it is a big step up to international football. A 30-minute no-nonsense preview of the weekend's Premier League action. I think they'll do well in the Champions League. They just, yeah. they, they'll get to the last, the knockout stages, and if they get a, you know, a kind of B-level team, not one of the big, the really big guns, you know, they could get to a quarter-final, and you never know. The Paddy Power Half Hour, every Friday from 12 midday, only on OTV Sports Radio, live 24-7 on the Go Loud app. The OTB Podcast Network. OTB Gold. The very best of off the ball. Hello, you're very welcome along to some OTB Gold. It's Joe Malloy here. OTB Gold being a collection of the very best off the ball interviews from the past 17 years. Today, a piece from 2012. Ronnie Delaney. Doesn't really need to be said, but Ronnie Delaney, of course, won gold for Ireland at the 1956 Olympics. And 56 years after that, he sat down with Jerry Gilroy in June 2012. OTB Gold. The very best of off the ball. Can you take me back to them when you were the age of your own grandchildren and who was playing the role to make you inspired about the Olympics? What was it that got you running? Well, I think the great thing was that, and I, again, I advocated to the young people out there, playing multi-sports. So I was born in Sandy Mountain. You had every conceivable sports opportunity. So I played all these sports. So therefore, my heroes were on hockey teams for Ireland, cricket teams. Uh, obviously, I went up to Glen Malure Park and watched the Rovers with my dad. Rugby was last down road near Sandy Mount. Anyway, I could go on and on, on and on. But who inspired me? I was inspired first by the legend of the boxers and the great Billy Conn, the Irishman who nearly beat Louis, the commentators on the boxing uh, who would be describing the British boxer boxing magnificently, beautiful straight lefts and then Joe Baskey or someone would knock him stone dead. So these were my heroes, my reading my heroes. But then within my home my brother Joe was I don't think that anyone would dispute him was the greatest schoolboy athlete Ireland ever had. Uh, 12 years of age, he was primary school winner intermediate in the schools uh, all, all the seniors in the schools and at the same time as he held the uh, long jump title for youths and schoolboys. He was the men's long jump oh, holder, and that was 18 years away. Now that is not recorded; it's it's not remembered. But he could also run 400 meters, and he could run. He could sprint. So he held Irish sprint titles, 400 meter titles, long jump, and one occasion he tried the high jump, and he, and he won the high. Jump. No way! So, so that's some some brother. To he's, he's obviously your older brother. My older brother, and I used to race him home from the train so, every day at Sydney Parade. I, he was four years older than me. So you were always trying to impress him, I guess. Oh yeah, I even tried to beat him. I tried to beat him in running. I could ne- never do. It. I beat him once when I was about fifteen, and it was extraordinary. Uh, uh, in an informational sense, it was a mile round the tennis courts of Claremont and it was the sports day. And my talent was there, I didn't know it, but I entered the mile and at 15 years of age I beat all the men and I beat my great brother Joe. And of course, the amount of laps that there were around the tennis courts, 12, 13 laps, oh Delaney, you didn't win it. And my big brother Joe came up and he said, Ronnie beat me, he passed me. Ronnie is the champion. And that was the beginning of a discovery, and the discovery process was slow. I only really be- 
began to believe I could be a great runner when I was 17. But that's only four years away from winning gold at the Olympics. Yeah, but it's even it's fascinating because I was 18 really, I was schoolboy champion, I wasn't particularly good, I wasn't breaking records. I was playing tennis, I was playing cricket, playing rugby, I was doing everything. But at 18 I was invited to run for the Irish men against the Northern Ireland men. And I beat all the men and I broke two minutes for the first time in winning one minute 58 point uh, something seconds. Now that was 53. The four minute mile was run under a mile under four minutes by Dr. Bannister on I think the 5th of May 1954. My best time the day he was running was still one minute 58.7. Now two years later I was Olympic champion, 1956, two years after he ran the first four-minute mile. And I myself was running a four-minute mile at 20 in the 1st of June. So I had this talent, I had this gift, and I had this inspiration and dedication to want to be a great athlete. But I progressively progressively discovered I was a great athlete. The, the two minutes that you broke, that's for 800 metres, is it? Eight, 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 half mile. Yeah. It was extraordinary. And yet I was running... Two years later, I was running. <laughs> I was running. My first mile, interestingly, was in down in um, uh, Irishtown, this lovely stadium that's yeah. down there. And I compliment the city on that great stadium, that great facility. But I came up as the one fifty-eight half mile to the Irish Championship, and uh, I entered the Irish Championship. Uh, can I go on a little? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah, we've loads of time. And I hadn't, I hadn't uh, run any faster because I hadn't raced since that day. So I go up to, I've trained very hard, I've worked uh, with a coach from England and I know I'm very straight, fit and I'm very strong. So I entered the Irish half-mile championships in Irishtown Stadium. The Irish champion was Mick Byrne, the, there's a guy from Trinity who was called Mackay or McKay. And they, I wasn't even considered. So the race starts and on the back stretch, what has become the legendary Delaney kick. I'm there, the skinny... 19-year-old, and the two champions are strutting it out at the front. I blast by them, and Mick Byrne told me 50-something years later, he says, which was suitable excellence, he says, Delaney, he says, when I saw this skinny fella running by me, sprinting by me, he said, I said to him, what the hell is that fella doing warming up on the back straight during a race? And of course, he said, he finished the story, and he said about Ten seconds later, I realised you were in the race going around the bend. So I think that's a hysterical story. And Mick Byrne is still alive and well and my, my salutation to him out there. So at that point, you must have realised that you had a, a serious... Yeah, I knew I had great talent then and my story is win, win, win after that. But, uh, but when, the, when did you dedicate yourself to this? Like, when did you realise... I realize... dedicated after the two, the, uh, breaking two minutes for the half mile. And did someone and, have to tell you at that point? Or? No, no, I, I was very strong, very strong-willed. So I was a cadet in the Irish Army and... And I thought I could combine being a great athlete and an officer. I discovered I couldn't, and much to the chagrin of my father and everyone else had any common sense. He said, this guy's mad. I resigned from the, uh, from the army and with, with uh, proper authority from the minister. And uh, then Did you I, have to make a special case? Look, I oh think yeah, I can be yeah, an athlete yeah, here. Yeah, I want yeah, to go to the Olympics. Because yeah, um, yeah. it's not easy to do to no, get out I, of the I, army. I wasn't quite saying I want to go to the Olympics. I said I want to be... the as great an athlete as I can be and I can't be that here and uh, they very kindly helped me to put language together that got me an honorary discharge and then I set 
off to Kilkenny selling vacuum cleaners door to door and I was training during the day selling the vacuum cleaners in the evening completely committed now to becoming a great athlete but I couldn't share it I said it to you at the time you said oh you're mad Delaney but my belief is so strong that I went after this took these huge decisions another huge decision was to go to America but I was vindicated in my first race, which I told you about, the yeah. Mick Byrne one, because I broke the Irish men's record that day, which is incredible. And then that summer, in August, I went to Byrne, and I was an Irishman, middle-distance runner, who got to the final of the 800 metres. I won my first round, my, uh, I was second in my second round, but I, I ran something like 151 point something, and then in the semi-final I ran 150.2 but the point was I could beat people I you know I savaged a whole gang of guys going up the straight in, in the in the, um, in the semi-final but I had three races in say five days and I was a young boy I couldn't run at all on the, on the, on the final day especially because of a big guy called Eckfert or something a Swede he, was about, he seemed to me about seven foot tall he hit me a belt on the first <laughs> day so I was gone <laughs> I wouldn't have done any better so I ran very bad but now I knew now I knew I could beat the the best in the world because I was running against the best of the world in Europe and then when I went to America got under the tutelage of Jumbo Elliott that was fascinating I wanted to ask you specifically about that because if, if we roll it back you know this is a world where communications are, are not, not difficult the, the telephone exists but you need somebody to be there at the end of the telephone the whole time letters take a long time yeah. how do the people in America realise that they want to bring you to Villanova it, it's to Villanova yeah I, I presume it's a scholarship is it? it yeah it's a full scholarship academic and uh, athletic in the sense that you've got all your board and books and, and, and tuition Do you apply for that uh, in those well, days, it's a funny thing. I I ran sequentially. I'm not talking too much. No, right? no, absolutely. We've loved Se- time. Sequentially, I would have beaten the athletes after running the half mile in, in Irish Town. Uh, I then ran in, in College Park, but I ran against Penn and Cornell, and the athlete from Corn Penn was, I think, Rowdenbush, and I beat him. And then more Americans came on the scene later that summer. And I beat them, and the coaches would meet me, and they'd say, hey, son, you should come too. And they'd tell me about the um, inter-different conferences, you know, the inter, uh, the IC4As and the NCAAs. The words meant nothing to me. And Penn couldn't take me because they didn't give scholarships, an Ivy League for college for the rich people. But he told me about Villanova, and I knew a bit about Villanova, and... Again, during the summer, a guy called Fred Dwyer came over from America, was running in College Park. He ran in the mile. I was running the half mile. And he talked to me and he effectively recruited me. Okay. But you're fascinating, your observation on communication. It was so difficult to communicate, you know, to send off application forms. I think I had to sit an exam here in Dublin. And the whole process of being informed, I think eventually was maybe a telegram to say, you've been accepted, pack your bags and come. And that was a story in itself because the excitement of travelling over to America. I can only imagine. Can you put in context the time in terms of the winning the gold medal and being in Villanova? Cause yeah, precisely. It was the 23rd of September 1954. And I flew out of Shannon. You were waked out of Shannon in those days. There's no runway at, at Dublin Airport. I arrive in New York and I'm collected by the captain of the team, Jim Moran. So it was the 23rd of September. 
I go off to the track a couple of days later. I rested up. Uh, they thought it was Rip Van Winkle they'd got because I stayed in bed for a couple of days when I arrived there. The coach Elliot was quoted saying, when the hell is this damn Irishman going to come down and see us? So I went down and the first thing he did was he got me to run a few laps for him and run a few straightaways. And then the very paternally American coaches and he came over and he put his arm around my shoulder and he said, Ron, he says, I was already becoming Ron you are going to be a great miler one day. Now, I wasn't exactly impressed with this. I wanted to be a great half miler. But he recognised that talent and sequentially then to take the next two years to bring us up to December 1956. 1955, going home to Ireland for holidays. But I used to have to race everyone when I was back here. I was exhausted. My dancing was affected in the crystal and all these different <laughs> ballrooms. I, I was one of the... One who got tired and the wall was a limerick. Oh, no. But he, he says to me, when you're home, run a mile. And uh, I said, being a young man of good manners, I said, yes, coach. And I didn't run the mile until August. And Jumbo, uh, Billy Morton was the great athletics impresario in Ireland at the time. And I was up at the Irish Swimming Championships. I wasn't training that hard. In a couple of days before the the day I was supposed to race and I stayed up late the night before the night was to race and I was up in Bangor and I was I was a bit bushed you know so doesn't it start raining on the train coming down from from uh, Belfast and I'm praying dear God make the meet be cancelled the meet was cancelled and it was held the next day and the next day I was fully refreshed and I wouldn't be telling you this long winded story if I hadn't broke the world, the Irish record for the mile my first time I ever ran a mile, I ran 4 minutes 5 seconds, so Elliot was right, I was going to be a great miler and again this informational thing 150 in the European Championships, my first run in America on boards 210 breaking the Boston Garden record my first run at a mile I was gifted and these things inspired me and then you begin to dream of winning the Olympics It's at that point you kind of think alright, hmm I look at the talent and I, I don't see anybody who I'm scared of. Yeah, I wasn't scared. I was a racer. I had this instinct to race and I had a great kick. And the whole purpose of running inculcated in my mind by Jumbo Elliott and my colleagues on the, on the Villanova team who I'd like to refer to a little later was win or bust. Now, I ultimately realised I could win the Olympics when I was 20. I think it was the seven or eight mile I'd ever run. I ran a competitive mile in Compton, California, the 1st of June against a man called Nielsen from Denmark. And I broke the four-minute mile. Now, the psychology at the time was that there's this huge barrier you had to crash through and boom, boom, you've broken four minutes. I had to beat this guy. This guy was a, a world record holder of 1,500 metres. I had to beat him. And I beat him by, say, two yards. But in the process, I ran a four-minute mile. Isn't it remarkable when you compare it with today's? It, it, one of the things that I was reading about in your record is that you have a, an unbroken streak indoors of something like 40 successive races, yeah. where you win 40 successive races. Yeah, yeah. My understanding of the indoor circuit is that it's violent and that it's, it's that winner-bust instinct that kicks you to the front and your elbows have to be out and, you know, you're not going to get smacked by a, a seven-foot Swede and, <laughs> and, and win that race. I got a few facts. There's a guy called 
Courtney went on to win the, win the 800 metres uh, in, in Melbourne the year I won the 1500 metres. He gave me a few clatters a few times. My first time up in Boston Garden, great Marine, US Marine called Carl Joyce, uh, he was in behind me and he was giving me a belt in the back every time he brought his arm forward. So it was rough. But then I'm, I'm a was big and strong and especially my upper body strength was phenomenal I could do extraordinary so I learned how to manage myself in fact Elliot took me aside after the Boston Garden which sequentially would have been in January 1955 and he was didn't really congratulate you on winning he'd just say well done son and then he said to me you have a lot to learn and the next training session we spent on how to manage yourself on the track now I'm copyright on those uh, techniques so if any young aspiring <laughs> athlete out there wants to for enormous money I'll pass it on to but that's, that's the story the beauty of the indoor running was that Eamon Coughlin then succeeded me Marcus O'Sullivan, all these great Irish athletes, Frank O'Mara go on and break world records, win world championships. And I have a theory that it's the actor or the thespian in every Irishman. Eamon's a bit of a showman. I was a bit of a showman. And the intimacy of the track, in my case it was 12 laps to the mile, sometimes 11 laps to the mile. Eamon's latter part of his career was probably 8 laps, laps to the mile. But I felt you were performing the way they presented it. They put a spotlight on you. The the band played music, you know, as the mile race was going on, it would say, and when Irish eyes are smiling, because the Irish, you know, when Irish eyes, and then as we sprinted at the end, it'd be, when Irish eyes are smiling, <laughs> it was a wonderful, and I tell you all this because my concentration was so intense when I was running, and my preparation was so intense, and my mind focus before I competed, I wouldn't recognise you if you walked by me. I, my brother used to say to me at Sandwich, hey, Ronnie, you never said hello to me. I wouldn't see him. I, I can honestly say I don't ever remember where I was being competitive hearing the crowd. You know, the foreman breaking the world record out in Sandry when we all did it. I don't remember a sound of the Irish crowd. Your concentration would be so intense. And that's what I've said recently to one or two of our track athletes. Just focus yourself so you switch off the surrounds the crowd people shouting at you people wishing you well get off all that and just focus on what you're there to do and that is to win or to qualify how did you learn that i think uh i'd have to get maybe someone who studied the mind to explain how i learned i had it instinctively the way i instinctively was a racer did you have it racing your brother from Sydney Parade? That's, that's a very that's two very interesting things that's very interesting because i raced him and I was the child racing the youth. And one of the objectives was to beat him. But an even bigger one, Mummy had made these lovely milk puddings. And I was trying to get home so I'd get the scrapings of the pot. So the, the prize was there as well. A lot of prizes motivated me. But in a funny way, that, that sort of environmental thing, like I went to O'Connell schools, very proudly to O'Connell schools and Catholic University school. But to go to O'Connell schools, I had to run up the... Buckingham Street every day with the heavy satchel and a bit like the Kenyans running at high high altitude my high altitude at 12 and 13 years of age and even earlier than that was running up 
Buckingham Street to be in time for school, running down Buckingham Street to Amiens Street to get the train out home for lunch, running from the train. I mean, everywhere I was going, I was running, running, running. And I think this is how I developed such phenomenal stamina and strength, a bit like the Canyons did in, in, in the history of track and field. It is an amazing kind of sequence of events that takes you to America puts you with a coach who understands what your skill set is helps you hone that skill set and then gets you ready for an Olympic Games as well yeah. can I ask you about the build up to the Olympic Games because we're about 30 days out from the, the Games now yeah. the nervousness that athletes must be feeling were you well I, I was in great company the Villanova track team was known as the greatest little track team in the world and why was it known as that because a contemporary of mine was Charles Jenkins he went on to win the 400 metres before I won the 1,500 metres. Uh, another contemporary was Don Bragg. He went on to win the pole vault in Rome. So that was the company I was in. There were endless. Phil Rivas, the high jumper, he was in the Olympic Games in Melbourne. Frank Budd, who was a contemporary of mine, he was a world record holder. George Sidner. We had about a six or seven man team and we are the greatest little track team in, in, in the world. So this is the company I'm in. I have great competition. I have great people of a common mind. We we share the same dream. We share the same desire. And we we bond together. I mean, Jenkins and I, every time before we raced, we, we went walking. We walked the streets around Philadelphia, the beautiful roads around Philadelphia. And all we'd be doing would be talking, 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 track, track, and talking the mentality of it. So the lead-up before the Olympic Games, your primary focus is on training. I trained twice a day. I never trained as hard before or never trained as hard since. Two of my uh, colleagues on the track team used to do alternate quarter miles with me. One was uh, Breckenridge, who represented um, America in the, in the marathon. The other was Johnny Copel, who's a great high school miler. And they ran alternate laps with me because no one could stay those with me. So it was all about that training and the strength and the power that Elliot was instilling into me by these very tough sessions. I mean, they were, And they were all quality. Of the 1,500-metre runners in the world, the closest to preparation in terms of me would have been uh, Lord Coe, Sebastian Coe, because he didn't run 120 mile a week. He ran about 50 mile a week, yeah. but he ran 50 quality. Now, his quality was probably 40% better than my quality. But for my time, I was doing these quality quarter miles, 220s or furlongs, and 300s and 120 yards in great company. So my whole focus would have been on, quote, training eating, sleeping, no sociability, studying. Uh, coach's uh, view on studying was you look after study and you like your training and you've no problem with your exams. Yeah. And I particularly needed that because I didn't go. I went to the Olympics during the school term. I know, I was going to say. So you, like, you have to take a long period of time off while at the same time there's a thing in the back of your mind going, I'm going to have to go back here and do exams and go back to normality at some point. Well, to be quite honest, I didn't even give the exams a thought. Once I got on got on that plane in New York, I joined the Irish team in the New, New York. And what an Irish team. Incredible team. The boxers and Jerry Martini and Maeve Kyle... Eamon Kinsler, all the winners, uh, Fred Teed, Freddie Gilroy, Johnny Caldwell, Soxburn, 
five medals out of this this twelve man team with no manager, with no trainer, with no psychologist, with no with no uh, what do you call these people? Tell you what you're supposed to eat. Nutritionists. Nutritionists. We, just, we were all together, and what an incredible again environmentally. I was with winners. I was with winners at Villanova. I was going to be with winners on the Irish team, and everyone was so focused on winning. So I didn't really switch on till I got down to Melbourne. But by God, I was more concerned about would the plane make it between the different hops than what the Olympics were coming up. You know, you had to fly across the Pacific. and Such an adventure, such an adventure. The, the arrival then there and the build-up to the actual race itself, obviously you're an incredibly confident young man at this stage. You know the quality of work that you've done from what you're saying, the, the level of focus that you had yeah. about the event itself was going to be huge. But at the same time, it's still an event where everybody else in the race believes almost exactly the same thing that you do, that they've done the best preparation. I think that's a great analogy because I often think about that. All the fellows who train as hard as me and they don't achieve. There's a degree of destiny in achieving what, what, what you win in the Olympics. You know, somewhere the greater plan, it's for you to be the winner, not the guy who trains as hard or not the guy who has even more desire than you have. So... Uh, Again, I've lost the point of the question. If you just, I, I suppose that is the point, really. Like, the, oh yeah, the, I know. The build up I, to the I, race. I know what I want to say. I want to say that there's not an arrogance there. There's a self belief. I used to pray before I raced, and I never prayed to win. I always prayed, dear God, give me the opportunity to run to the best of my ability. And I knew then in my own mind that if I could run to the best of my ability I could probably win. Isn't that an extraordinary sort of conclusion? A bit of cheating as well I suppose. <laughs> cheating God. <laughs> I've been known to do that. You know, I, I should have said hey God let me win. You know, I didn't say that. I said hey let me run very well. Maybe everybody else was praying to win. Yeah. Funny the English guys they were lovely guys and this is the lovely aspect of the Olympics you know 56 years on the beauty of the Olympics. All my friends, and they're still my friends to this day, competed against me, but the great English athletes, Brian Hughes and Wood and uh, Boyd, I met them in the, in the, uh, in the village, and um, they c- confront each other, we meet each other, and salutations, greetings. We're not exactly embracing each other, but we are. We are competitors, we are friends. And Houston, in particular, was a great, great athlete. And Houston turns to me, who's going to win the 1,500 metres? You know, asking me to philosophise and rationalise and give him my strategic thinking on who would win. I said, I'm going to win the Olympics. And they they audibly screamed, the trio. <laughs> I was only being bravado on my part, but I thought it was pretty, pretty good psychologically. And I ran myself into it in 1958. Houston was a great runner. And I'm running against him in Stockholm, and I've had a long year, a bit like our soccer players and our rugby players today. I've had a long, long year, and I'm in Stockholm. It's lashing rain. It's miserable. And I was warming up away from the glamour and the excitement of the arena. And who do I see? This lone figure training in the same uh, stadium near the main stadium, and it's Brian. And I go over to Brian, and stupidly I say to him, hey, Brian, who's who's going to win the 1500 metres today he said I am he said today suits me well I said fair juice so. <laughs> <laughs> and, and did he win he did win and if ever you look at the picture of that 1500 metres and I was I was third I won Ireland's first ever medal in the European Boyd of um, Norway I think was second Aware of Sweden was second 
and Houston is winning. And the picture of me is one of a smile across my face from your tear. I was just saying, you, you son of a gun, you put it to me. I even gave him a little nudge going around last bend when I passed him, but I didn't, didn't hit him hard enough. <laughs> so, Brian, if you're out there, lovely recalling that story. Uh, Ronnie, the, um, the, there's a couple of things that strike me that, uh, you know, you're a very affable man, but actually beneath it all, when it came down to, to competition, the competitive urge was the strongest thing about it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that beating your brother and beating these other guys, that that was there the whole time. That, yeah. that maybe that's in the makeup of the athletes who do go on to win gold medals. I think it has to be. I think it has to be. Uh, you have to be ruthless and you have to have this enormous self-belief too, you know, to... There's a, uh, without overworking it, there's an intellectual aspect, especially to the 1500 metres. You know, there's, there's the other runners. But you're only 21 when you win the gold medal and, and yeah. you've already acquired all that, that intellectual... Yeah, see, I was in America and... It was the most competitive race in the world. And I had all this experience of running indoors and then I was running relays and I had an extraordinary level of racing. I went out there in, in uh, September. I ran cross country. Indoors began in January. I ran all over the place. Chicago, Milwaukee, New York, Boston, everywhere imaginable. And then spring, we started off a few soft meets, maybe up in Randall's Island, Quantico, Virginia. Then we went into pen relays. Pen relays were like a world championships. And some of the indoor runs were like world champs. There were people now who ran the Milrose Games. They thought the Wanamaker Mile was bigger than the Olympics. Pen relays, 50,000, 60,000 people watching. And an incredible relays we don't understand in Ireland, but this is a festival of relays. I had the privilege of running for Villanova in 10 relays, and we won all 10 relays. So this is the environment I'm in. I'm in the environment of winning and only wanting to win. I'm the environment of colleagues who are equally committed, uh, colleagues who go on to, to uh, teammates is a nicer word than colleagues, who go on to win gold medals. And we, we all have this instinct, this uh, belief that we can win. Now, why do you not win? I sometimes, when I'm asked to give formal lectures, I talk about learning from losing. I learned a lot more from losing because when I was studying too hard doing exams and I tried to race, I couldn't race. A couple of those races, one was nationally televised in America, it was the day of the Kentucky Derby, and I had to race John Landy in the Los Angeles Coliseum. But first of all, I travelled out, which was much more arduous in those days. I was doing exams up to the day I left, and you get out there and you can't run. Mm. I mean, mentally, you think you can. Uh, but mentally, I did stupid things that day. I took the lead and I ran like a hare. <laughs> I was scared there because I wasn't thinking as strongly that I could win the Olympics at that stage. But I learned a lot from Landy, and I raced him twice, and he beat me twice. And he more or less told me, that I could be a great miler and he must have seen something in me that I mightn't have been as aware of but he was very generous in that sense and even the day we're, when we're going out onto the um, stadium in, in, in Melbourne 120,000 people blistering sunny day he wished me well and are going out on, 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 on the track now that's the beauty of sport and that's what I was talking about the friendships that have persisted all these years but you're quite right you, you have to be mean there has to be something mean inside you something vicious inside you that you want to win. You, you talked earlier about not hearing any of the noise um, from the Olympic final and, and the race itself. How much of that do you, do you recall or is, is that still a tunnel as well in your mind? Uh, I can tell you the big picture. Big picture was 
I was in a good position everywhere, even though I was towards the backs of the, the field. The big picture was what had been drummed into my mind by Coach Elliot was relax, relax, relax. Minimise your expend- expenditure of energy. That was there. The race, I say, only begins at the bell. Well, where was that field at the bell? It's the most classic 1500 meter race ever. The entire field is within six yards. I'm not that well positioned, but I'm, be- I'm still only five yards off the front. The field I know is going to break up, you know this is from experience. The bell ringer is so excited, I heard afterwards that he forgot to ring the bell. So we don't know it's the last lap, I'm only joking. We knew it was the last lap. Then you have your uh, thinking on it is, who do you watch? You can't watch everyone, but I, you know you're conscious of those around you. I was conscious of people making bursts at different stages of the race. Lincoln ran from last to first. Houston took the lead too early. He was leading going into the backstretch. Landy and I were shouldering and not in the most gentle sense, we, we were shoulder to shoulder rather than shouldering. He began to move down the back stretch because he wouldn't have the sprint I had. I didn't panic. I stayed in his wake and I trailed him down the back. And these are my memories. And then what I've been taught to do is one dynamic burst. And the man who taught me that was Jack Sweeney, famous legendary coach in Ireland, my school coach. One burst, one burst, and you make this one burst and that's all you get. You don't get two opportunities to burst. So I made that burst about 150 metres from home, 160 metres from home. You're going around the last bend, there's a huge long straight, and I was, I was just flying, you know. God, uh, I can't remember it specifically, but I was just flying. I mean, my legs were pumping, my arms were pumping, and I, I just knew I was, I, I, was ta- I was cutting them down. Then when you hit the front, you know you're going to win, and you approach the tape, and you, you, the joy doesn't come till the exultation when you go through the tape. You throw your arms out, and you, then the reality hits you. You've thrown your arms out. You've won the Olympics. You're all over the world. Every newspaper in the world. Every your picture, iconic picture of all time. Then you suddenly say, "Oh my God, I can't believe it!" You know, you can't believe you you won. And then I said a prayer of of thanksgiving. But could I recap just a second? Cause the final tra- training session I had in America, coach goes down the track, pulls a, a tape across the track and says, you know, son, he says, go down and, and run through the tape. So I did a mock going through the tape of my arms out in exultation. And the coach comes over, Ternal, puts arm around you and he says, son, now we've practiced everything, even breaking the tape. I think we could write this book, couldn't we? <laughs> It's, it's an unbelievable thing to happen to a 21-year-old. And yet, again, it seems like from what you've said that you were prepared for it. And, and a lot of the stuff that comes afterwards, that it wasn't a burden to be an Olympic champion. Uh, no, because I was instinctively I was a racer. And the key decisions I mentioned earlier, like giving up a career in the Irish Army, uh, going down to Kilkenny to sell vacuum cleaners door to door, they're the they're the the actions of a man who had an extraordinary instinct, extraordinary intuition that he was going to be great. And I think I've been modest in the sense that I've explained how I didn't think I was great initially, and then I progressively I began to think I could be great, and then when I ran the four-minute mile, I, I knew I could beat the world, I knew I could beat the... Uh... And funny, I never had that sort of rationalisation afterwards, because every time I ran, I was targeted. 
Everyone's trying to beat me. Now, I managed to keep them in my wake for five years indoors, which gave me, gave me great pleasure, especially because a lot of them were Americans. And then they used to bring over Houston and everyone else to Rossavalgi, Tabri. They brought all these guys to race me in all these stadiums, and I, I saw them... I saw them off, so that was great pleasure for me. I, I loved it. So you get great fun out of it too. Yeah, you know? it seems like you just enjoyed it. That was the other I loved thing. It. That the loved whole, it. The, there was a buzz that kept you going. But having said that, you were terrified. You know, sometimes you're interesting, especially when I, I I was doing the series of wins. You know, you get tired. The papers are saying thirty with races without losing, and you go into Madison Square Garden and you're a bit low on yourself, and you're you're dawdling along at the back, and your mind is going. I wonder could I feign a stitch or something and uh, uh, you know roll in on the side of the track and then you think a little for, oh god no they might take me to hospital or something <laughs> they say, I better race so you, yeah, something like that would shock you you're mental you're tired mentally if you've won so many races you've won so many in success you're tired mentally so in an individual race you might feel that you could feel fear before races your nervousness you had to manage that too you had to switch your nerves on and off the indoors was particularly difficult because we used to race at 9 and 10 o'clock at night and the whole day to spend in a hotel room minimising your output of any energy I used to go to the theatre a lot I went to Broadway shows during the afternoon of his New York and again I had to watch it I didn't cramp my legs so it's the 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 story of of uh, of running is extraordinary when all these different aspects of it come out, isn't it? We had um, Dick Fosbury on the programme oh, yeah. recently enough. He was 21 years of age when he won gold in um, in Mexico and he also retired in his, his, in his mid-twenties and I remember kind of talking to him about that and he just said that after he won gold, he became really famous. Obviously, the Fosbury flop. I mean, yeah, that made him more famous than most American. It, exactly, yeah. And he, he found that quite difficult to deal with. That oh, it was yeah. thrust upon him immediately, and he was like, mm, "I prepared for the run. I prepared for the Olympics. I prepared for the athletics. I prepared for everything except the celebrity aspect of it." Obviously, if you're running in nationally televised uh, races before massive TV audiences and, and going unbeaten on the American indoor circuit, you were quite famous in the United States. Extraordinarily famous, yeah. Were you ready for that? I was very comfortable handling it. I, I was comfortable with the media because I didn't distrust them. Uh, I friends in, in the media. Uh, my story was always a good story, so there was never... never a bad story because I was winning most of the time and uh, they, a lot of the people I had to relate to became friends but the American psyche would be different to mine the first thing is that I'm an Irishman and I came home to Ireland in a time of depression in Ireland and I'm the crew cut kid with the beginning of American accent and my contemporaries they brought me down to earth so fast my mother brought me down. My God, what happened to your head? I'd go up to buy um, uh, an ice cream or something and I'd, I'd say, have you any tomatoes? And the lady in the shop would look at me, what do you mean? What do you? And I had to let my hair grow and I had, to, I had to be just another person in Ireland. That's the beauty of Ireland. You're saluted when you're ancient like me now. <laughs> there are my, my contemporaries. And there was always that guy. And I loved my homecoming to Ireland. Um, Olympic champion. There's a motorcade from Limerick up to Dublin. Every little village we go into. We went into, uh, what do you call it? We went into different towns. And Nace, you got the local authority came out and they gave you some, something. Nina, that 
chairman of this came out and gave, and the Lenina was the Tisdale country. So, um, anyway, the thing about a point of my story here is that everywhere you went, some people had a few pints on them and come up to you and said, Johnny Mac or someone down the road, if he'd only trained as hard as you, he'd have beaten you. you know? So, my God, you were, you were kept modest. But the finally comment on the American psych. Don Bragg, who won the gold medal in the pole vault in 1960, Don uh, met me in, in Ireland some years later. And he had had a, an extraordinary post-athletic career because he made a film of Tarzan, but it was never printed because of the copyright on the Tarzan thing. He had a lot of disappointments in his life. He was fired as a director of a sports college because he appeared on Sports Illustrated with a cigar up his nose. He was some character. But he arrives in Ireland, and I remember his, his words to me um, uh, to this day. He turned to me and says, Ronnie, he says, how are you handling your ego or how are you managing your ego? And I said, well, what do you mean managing your ego? <laughs> he said, well, you know, from all the fame, being the Olympic champion, all the attendant fame, he said, how, how, are you, how are you managing that? I was struggling trying to raise three or four kids and do a job for the company employment. I had no difficulty managing that. But that's the American psych. They, mm. And there's a sad time, time side to it too that it, your instantaneous publicity is, goes on for, let's say, five. Fosbury's case, much longer. Don Bragg's case, five, ten years. Then he's gone. He's gone. Here in Ireland, you win a gold medal. You never let forget it. Thank God. And thank God to the the guy, the dub who said to me one time when I was walking down the quays, he looked at me and he said, Delaney, he says, I never saw anyone get so much mileage out of winning a bloody medal. Ronnie Delaney, legend. Thanks so much for spending time in our company. Thanks so much, yeah. That was lovely. OTB Gold. The very best of Off the Ball. That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation. 